This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss what Cretan health, wellness, and hospitality looks like with hotelier Petros Kardiakakis. We'll learn how making art together can strengthen a marriage with artist and author Spencer Brewer. We'll find out about the concept of releasement with author Lucille Joseph. And lastly, we'll discover the connection between the holidays and depression with author Faust Ruggiero. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. Alzheimer's disease has plagued one large Colombian family for generations, striking down half of its members in the prime of life. But one member of that family evaded what had seemed to be fate, despite inheriting the genetic defect that caused her relatives to develop dementia in their 40s, she stayed cognitively healthy into her 70s. Researchers at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis now think they know why. A previous study had reported that unlike her relatives, the woman carried two copies of a rare variant of the apogene known as the Christchurch mutation. In this study, researchers used genetically modified mice to show that the Christchurch mutation severs the link between the early phase of Alzheimer's disease, when a protein called amyloid beta builds up in the brain, and the late phase, when another protein called tau accumulates and cognitive decline sets in. So the woman stayed mentally sharp for decades, even as her brain filled with massive amounts of amyloid. I'll be joined by Petrus Kardiakakos in a minute. But first, a little bit of business. What if there was a place that promised you leave better than when you came? Where the sunshine never stops, the sleep is exceptional, and the food is the best you've ever had. What if you felt the years come off? That's what guests say about visiting the Cretan Dream Resort and Spa. With flights to Athens, Greece direct and available through Air Canada, you'll be glad you booked. Find special pricing directly on CretanDreamResort.gr. Hurry and book before it sells out. Find out why the Greeks love the island of Crete. Petros Kardiakakis was born on May 21st, 1982 in Melbourne, Australia, to immigrant parents from Greece. He studied business marketing, and after graduating, he worked in the family business as a cabinet maker and a mattress maker. In late 2018, after his father's passing, he came to Crete and started managing the family resort. Five years later, in the hospitality industry, the hotel has begun being recognized far and wide Is the place that leaves you better than when you came. The Cretan Dream Resort and Spa. Welcome to the show, Petros. How are you? Jamie, it's a pleasure. How are you? I'm doing really well. So I have to tell you, I've been to Europe many times, but Greece is still on my bucket list. So you're going to have to explain to me, what is Cretan hospitality? What does that mean? Cretan hospitality. Okay, in short, Cretan hospitality is open-hearted and genuine. This is the DNA of the Cretan people. The Cretans are known for their culture, their hospitality, and all this derives from the word philodimo. 
The word philotimo only exists in the Greek language. So if you were to Google or open the dictionary to find the meaning of this word, this is what Greek um, hospitality and the Greek culture is all about. Its meaning of the word philotimo um, is an attitude towards fellow humans and humanity at large. It means showing empathy, compassion and generosity without expecting anything in return. And this is what the Greeks are renowned for. They take pride in what they do and what is right and honourable being a human. So basically, in short, philotimo is Cretan hospitality. Okay. You know, I've been to the Mediterranean, we've been to Spain, and we've been to Italy and some of the islands. So what makes Crete the island that people have to visit? What would you say makes it so unique? Okay, okay. Well, Crete is the largest island of Greece and famous for its diverse and vibrant land. Um, It's packed with ancient ruins, buzzing cities, um, breathtaking beaches, and the most important and what I love is the mouth-watering food. Um, every year, Crete has millions of um, tourists yeah. um, who visit the island for, the, for its sun, its sea, and sand. But yet, Crete also has way more to offer than what a normal destination that people will visit, like in other, in other countries. What it has to offer is a complete experience. You have to experience once in a lifetime. It's old, it's culture, which comes back from thousands of years, from the Minoan civilization, and it's food and everything else it has to offer. Okay, so what you don't know about me is I'm a foodie. I'm a former food writer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have some fantastic Greek restaurants in Toronto. So, like, you must have your favorite food. What's what's your favorite Cretan specialty? My favorite Cretan specialty is Antikristo. It's lamb. It's, it's, It's a way of cooking rather than the meat itself. Okay. So what they, what Antikristo is, it's they cook around the fire. So the ancient, the olden times, the Cretans, they knew that cooking on top of charcoal was really, really unhealthy for you because as it's burning, it lets out carbon monoxide and carbon monoxide goes into our food. So they cook around the fire. So it's a, it's a, it's a pit in the middle with fire and all the way around at a distance of about two meters, they put the meat and they hang the meat and it cooks slowly. And it, it's just mouth-watering. It's, it's amazing. And we offer this at our resort. We do this at a resort every week. Oh, that's awesome. So, like, I, I gather with the slow cook, it allows, you know, the lamb, you know, an animal which has a lot of cartilage to, to sort of, like, melt, I would assume, right? Is it, it melts. All its fat drips down. Um, it's, it drips and um, it soaks into its into a meat, but also extracts a lot of it. So it's a lot healthier, um, less fat. And the, from the salt that we use, the sea salt that we sprinkle all over the meat, which is not the sea salt that any country can just say of God. It's, it's Greek Mediterranean sea salt mm-hmm. with all its minerals and flavors and gives it all that mouth-watering taste. Fantastic. So I'm a bit of a breakfast dude. I have my ways, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you're going to tell me you have great breakfast at the resort too, right? We do. Definitely, definitely. Okay, so I have breakfast. First we have to know about um, myself and um, my people, my team. We love, we love organic. This is Crete. Crete is such a, it's a land so blessed with its, with its soil that it's got. We can grow anything you, you, you can think of. You can grow on this island. Right. So 
the one thing that Cretans, the, Cretans, the Cretans love is organic food, and that's why uh, the life expectancy in Crete is so high because of the, fo- the quality of the food. Sure. Um, so in our breakfast, what you will find, you'll find our honeycomb, which is from our bees. So our resort has got its own beehive, so we produce our own honey. So in the morning, you'll see the honeycomb and the fresh honey, which you can accompany straight away with the um, yogurt. So we've got Cretan yogurt, which we don't make. We buy it locally. It's fresh, organic. It's unbelievable. You have to, you have to try it to believe it. The other thing you will taste is our uh, Cretan rusk um, with mizithra cheese and tomato, which is very, very healthy with our olive oil. Mm-hmm. Our olive oil, just so you know that we produce it, our olive oil as well. So that's in our breakfast. So it's not your standard continental breakfast, although you, we do have that as well, but we've got all the Cretan, the, the Cretan um, produce that we grow and that we buy as well that we don't grow, that we have all together in the breakfast for people to experience. So, so uh, my last uh, trip to the Mediterranean, we went to Sicily, which has its own sort of breakfast traditions. We're a little bit out of the ordinary. They're big, about, they're big on cake for breakfast. So, so what, what's the big thing in Crete for breakfast? Is it the yogurt, with the, yogurt with the honey? Dacos, dacos. Dacos, okay. Dacos and uh, cheese pies that we have in the morning. Ah. And the yogurt, I wouldn't say, we wouldn't leave that out. And the yogurt with the honey, which is very, very beautiful. Okay. Um, but also the cheese and spinach pies that we have in the morning. Uh, the Svakanes bitters that we call. And the dacos, which is the Cretan rusk with mizithra cheese and tomato. Okay. So I understand that people get a really good night's sleep at your resort. Why is that? What's going on? That comes back to Australia. So back home in Australia, our family business um, is mattress manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So we've been manufacturing um, furniture and mattresses for many years. So the mattresses that we have at the resort come from our company in Australia. So the mattresses have been designed um, for an excellent night's sleep. So... What you will find, you'll find support, um, you'll find comfort, and a lot of people leave and obviously want to order the mattresses when they leave because they have such a beautiful sleep. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So we specifically went to Sicily in May because we didn't want to be there in summer. We felt it might be too hot. What's the climate like in Crete, and, and when would be the best time to come visit? So. Crete has an average of 300 days of sunshine each year. So starting from April until um, end of November, you'll find it's sunny days. So April April to May, end of May, start of June, that's when we get the mid-summer temperatures where you're in your late 20s, so it's a lot more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Come June until late um, end of um, August, that's when the temperature is really, really hot and it reaches its 40 degrees, so it depends what, what the guest wants. If they want the, the really hot weather, June, July, August is the time to be here. If you don't want the too so hot weather, so then you're the start of the summer season, April, May, um, September, October. Okay. So we were on food for a bit, and, and you mentioned your, your Greek oil, which I'm sure is amazing, and particularly because it sounds like you're producing on site. I understand another delicacy there is mountain tea. What is Greek mountain tea, and, and why is it so special? So Crete is, is in a different geographic location to the rest of Greece. So we're the most southern point of, um, of Greece. And the island of Crete, the little island of Gavros, is the actual most southern point of Europe. 
So we are very close to Africa. So our climate here is very different to the to the rest of um, to the rest of Greece. So with coming back now to the mountain seas, the geographic location and our topography of, of um, Crete, we're very mountainous. So mm-hmm. we've got very high mountains, and this is where the mountain tea grows. It grows at an altitude of 800 plus meters. So it's up high, um, and it's very very uh, rich in in vitamins and and minerals this um the mountain tea so which is really good for your heart it's very good for digestion and all the people the older people especially the older generation they drink this every day and this is the they say one of the main reasons why they live so so long because of the tea okay. and all its um, medical benefits it has to the body so i don't want to put you on the spot but like so is is this this is different than it's a different plant than the traditional tea plants that you would get like in India and Ceylon, right? Like in Sri Lanka, right? It's, I presume it's a different type of tea, or am I wrong about it is. that? It is. It is. It is a different type of tea. It's called malotida. That's mm-hmm. the Greek name of it, malotida. Yeah. And yes, it is very different. It's um, zero caffeine. That's um, what, That was my next caffeine. question. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So many good um, minerals and vitamins that you get out of this tea. So it's just plain with um, Cretan honey, organic honey. Okay. That's how we drink it here. And it's drank, um, you drink it just before bedtime, right. which helps with um, with your blood uh, sugar levels. It helps with a lot of many different things, the Greek malotida. So, forgive me, I don't know the answer to this question. Is your resort sort of near the coast? Are you on the water? Yes, we're on the water. So, we're, we're based in Hanya, um, which is the second biggest city in Crete. And we're just seven kilometers outside of Hanya on the western side of, of Hanya. And yes, on the water, based on the water. So I'm a, I'm a former sailing instructor. Is there good sailing off of Crete? I imagine there is. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Um, last year we held the um, European Sailing Championships here in, um, in, in Hanya. And we were honored for a lot of the sailors to, to be accommodated at our resort. So it's a great place, from what I understand, for sailing. And and do you have facilities there? Like, do you have windsurfing and sailing and stuff like that? We do. We've got um, surfing is just below our resort on the beach. But inside Hanya, there's um, there's designated groups that that do sailing and windsurfing for the people that would like to do that. Fantastic. So if somebody were inclined to visit your resort, what else should they know? Or what are you working on that's exciting? Well, the most exciting part that that I love the most is looking after our farms, our organic farms that we have, um, from our orchards, from our olive orchards to our orange groves and to our vegetable gardens that we have. Can the guests tour? Like I've been to, I, when we went to France, we were in the wine country and, and our host had sort of an organic farm of his own, which we were able to access. Can, can your guests access the farm? Well, as of this year, uh, sorry, as of 2024, yes, we have. So you will be able to, guests will be able to visit our farms. Um, we're organizing tours, which we'll be doing now, olive and wine tasting, which starts um, in 2024 season. And at the same time, that's where the guests will get to taste our olive oil. We'll see our, our trees, that our olive trees, which are thousands of years old, not hundreds of years old, not tens of years old, thousands of years old. That's how old our trees are. Um, they'll get to experience how we how we pick our olives. Um, unfortunately, we won't be able to show them how we press the olives because it's not olive season at the time. Right. But that will give them an understanding of how all this is is, is done. Okay, so we have time for one last question, and that is, I want an insider tip from the owner of the resort. When is the best time to book, 
And how should we do that? I guess when your heart is ready to come to Crete, when you're ready to come and experience what Crete has to offer and to experience the Cretan life, the lifestyle um, is the best time. What's the website that people should go to if they want to book? The website that people can go to to book is www.cretandreamresort.gr. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Jamie. That was uh, Petros Kardiakakis. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss making art together with your partner on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit ZoomerStore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy Program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Spencer Brewer has been creating art and music since he was a young boy. For most of his adult life, he was in the music business, recording and producing hundreds of records while working as a technician on over 20,000 pianos, crank phonographs, and pump organs. His wife, Esther Siegel, is a psychotherapist by training who has worked in the field of book art and been active in the scrapbooking world and created both greeting cards and found art sculptures. A late-in-life artist, she creates pieces that are a mixture of the whimsical and dark humor. Brewer and Siegel are the co-authors of Lost and Found, Assemblage Artists of Northern California. Welcome to the show, Spencer. How are you? I'm doing great, Jamie. Thank you. So how did you discover the concept of assemblage art, and what inspired you to start creating it together as a couple? I originally, I've been creating sculptures and just weird things most of my life from improvisational musical instruments made out of uh, the junk that we found, and then I would go on tour with uh, modern dance companies with it, to weird birdhouses, and eventually I uh, got, I owned a music store, and we ended up inheriting hundreds of junk instruments or things that needed to be fixed or people just give to us. And when the store closed in 2009, we moved the store, the shop, all the parts into our big barn. And so I started making assemblage sculptures uh, out of these desperate parts, uh, mostly out of musical instrument parts, but it it started expanding quickly. And Esther had been doing um, all kinds of original greeting cards, pop-up cards, and uh, doing actually some workshops on how to do these things. And so she got into the barn as well and started making stuff. And little did we know this thing was going to really balloon for us both. 
and become quite a passion. So we're going to shift gears a little bit. How long have you been together with Esther? How, how, how many years has it been? We've been together 46 years. Congratulations. So, you know, I, I've been I, I've been with my wife since I was 20 and she was 18. And we actually met uh, when I was 15 and she was 13. So we've been together a long time, too. What are some wow. of the. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the challenges in maintaining a meaningful connection and a long term relationship? We're going to put it all together in the next question. But let's start here. Yeah, it's um, over. Our, our, you know, obviously, with any marriage, you know, it's the. Uh, best thing we've ever done is the hardest thing we've ever done. And many, many times in our relationship, you know, she was doing her life, I was doing my life, she's a psychotherapist, way into horses, and we had you know, horse camps here with, you know, we had a lot of hundreds of kids here throughout the year, and I had a recording studio and we had all these musicians. This place was just buzzing with people all the time, but the two of us didn't travel the same path. We were doing the business of the relationship, you know, and shelling kids around and doing everything, you know, making the mortgage payments. But, and we supported each other, but doing something together that brought us both joy. And that's not just going out to dinner. You know, we're talking about an activity, a passion, something that brought us close. That was hard to find. We tried uh, dancing, tried a bunch of different things over the relationship. And it really, it really came together. I'd have to say, on a whole other place that we didn't expect was going to happen later in our relationship. You know, like 15 years ago when we started making art together, and it was totally organic. I'd be in the barn working, and she'd come in and says, well, "What about putting that in there? Have you ever thought about this?" And I get kind of excited. Well, wow, that was that's a cool idea. And then she started playing around and doing it. And I would come back with her. She'd ask me my opinion or how do I put this together? And through that, all of a sudden, we were interacting with one another and getting excited about what the other one was doing and or doing something together. So it, it brought us in a common, um, a common place, a common activity that was all around creativity and uh, being open to one another and what we had to say or contribute to each other's art. Both of you are creatives, but do you think everybody has that creative impulse in them? I feel like everybody does. Uh, creativity, we found over the years, um, especially I was a record producer for many years, and I'd have quite a few artists that would come in and they said, you know, well, I do this, but I'm not really that creative. And I, and I, you know, I, we'd have a little chat about that. Mm -hmm. But I find that everybody is creative, and that we're talking from accountants that don't think they're creative in what they do. The chefs are always creative in what they do. Anybody that has, has is like even a blue collar worker. They're extremely creative in how they approach their job, how they're going to do something. It, most people think that oh, I'm I'm just going to go out and do my plumbing today. Yeah, it's really an art in and of itself to be a good plumber. But you can also turn into a really creative process, which it is. I believe everybody's got that creative gene, no matter what you do in life. It's just how much you lean into that and how open you are to that part of ourselves. I think you're right, save and except for accountants. So I, I... <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I've seen a couple of accountants look at it. I've been really, really lucky Yeah. when I got into the wine business, and I don't want to go off too far off track here, yeah. but our partner in Wines That Rock, Bill, 
he's the accountant for supergroups all over the world, the Stones, uh, Lady Gaga, Sting, and how he saw numbers and how he saw accounts and stuff was just this incredibly artistic way of looking at it. So I, I hear you. I hear you. Like, I used to be a commercial litigator, so I can tell you, like, litigators always look at accountants like, oh, my God, there's no creativity there. But I hear what you're saying. So I understand, like, for, for you and Esther, you've kind of shifted from, a, and I'm quoting you, from a me place to a we place. So how does, you know, doing the, the, the work together that you do, the art and, and now writing the book, how, how, did, how did that aid in the transformation? The transformation happened is, is it, it was interpersonal, really for me more than her, is that, you know, I, I was an artist, a recording artist. I used to play a lot of concerts all over the place. So, you know, I was a front of house personality, let's say. Yeah, I hear you. And that, that being is I'm out there, I'm always in the public. I'm very comfortable being on stage. And that's not her world. She's a psychotherapist. She's one-on-one with, with her clients. This is very private. She can't come out and share it. You know, is it is it as meaningful? It's even more meaningful than what I would be doing. But it, you can't really get into it. Well, we go anywhere and I would, you know, I get the limelight, I would get the attention. And that was more of a me place. I was always wanting to share it with her, or be a partner with her, you know, but that may not be her experience. Her experience is I'm not as important. I'm not seen as much as, you know, all that stuff comes up. And so I really shifted when I started signing letters from, you know, I'm not saying we, you know, but proverbial we. I started signing emails. I started talking about we going into the book. We, we're doing this instead of I'm doing this and Esther's helping. That is just not the way, that's not the way to have a collaborative relationship. In this we to me, me to we place, the book is what really took us to this whole other place. Because for the very first time, we are working on a production instead of me producing a record, me producing a concert or a festival. We are producing a book. And so that's the thousands of decisions over three and a half years came about. And, you know, there definitely there were struggles. You know, how, how big do you want the book? I want this way. I want this way. Which art do you want of this artist? I want this. I want that. So there was a lot of give and take negotiations and talks. But it came down to all of a sudden our relationship, our living together became a we place. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you, go, you both of you are fortunate that you're able to express yourselves, you know, in writing and, and assembling art. And as creative, you know, if you accept that everybody has a creative element to their life, I, I think the scale might be different for other people. Like, you know, I, I see some of what you're saying and, you know, my wife and I enjoy sort of uh, making meals for other people. So we'll collaborate yeah. on, on putting a meal yeah. together. So I, the scale is very different, but I think the act of sort of planning out the meal and who we're going to invite and, you know, what the theme is going to be and who's going to do what and how it's going to be presented is similar, I think. Would you agree? I think it's the exact same. It's like uh, we I used to have a partner in the recording studio and he had 250 employees on the East Coast. And, you know, every day they'd make architectural furniture. And just it's, it's, it's a big company. And I'm hearing, you know, I've got two employees and we're having bands. At the end of almost every day, Gordon and I would get on the phone and talk to about each other's day. And what we found out is that it wasn't about how big, how large. It was the exact same experience, just there were just more zeros attached to it. Right. And when we thought about it that way, doing the meal, like you say, with you and your wife, 
that is just as powerful, just as important, and just as combining of yourselves with each other than putting a book together. Because it's, you know, a book is a minute thing. What font are we going to use on this page? For sure. It's very, it's not as fun as putting a meal together like you guys are talking about. So I think it's the exact same thing. It's, it's interesting because, you know, people would say I'm a creative because I publish a magazine and, you know, I host the talk show and I put on events as well. Yeah. You know, you would think that there'd be no more energy to do the smaller stuff like putting meals together. But there is for me. Like, I, I think once you start tapping into the creative side, it becomes yes. impossible to dam up. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. Because it's, it's a whole you're creative on your level. She's creative, and how you put this together. You're, you're basically, you guys are doing a production together. Correct. Whether it's uh, whether it's alive for years down the road, or it's for only three hours on that one night, it's still a production, and it's still something you rejoice and celebrate together, doing with each other. I think I think we've done a fair job of demonstrating the utility and benefits of working together towards something artistic. So, so thank you very much for coming on the show today. Oh, Jamie, thank you so much. This has been this has been a lot of fun. That was Spencer Brewer. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the concept of releasement on the tonic. Attention men over 50. Do you search for restrooms everywhere you go? Wake up several times at night just to go pee again? Are symptoms of a benign and large prostate taking over? Prostate Perform helps reduce the urgency and frequency of pesky pit stops in as little as 7 to 10 days. Available exclusively through natural health food stores. To ensure these products are right for you, always follow label directions. What if there was a place that promised you leave better than when you came? Where the sunshine never stops, the sleep is exceptional, and the food is the best you've ever had. What if you felt the years come off? That's what guests say about visiting the Cretan Dream Resort and Spa. With flights to Athens, Greece direct and available through Air Canada, you'll be glad you booked. Find special pricing directly on CretanDreamResort.gr. Hurry and book before it sells out. Find out why the Greeks love the island of Crete. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Lucille Joseph has had a successful business career, including a dozen years at the Boston Consulting Group. More recently, she's been involved in the arts. She served as chair of the board of the National Ballet of Canada and was one of the founders of the Luminato Festival in Toronto. Through all of this, she's pursued a deep and active spiritual quest, and that combination of corporate life and spirituality is pretty unusual. And now she's written a book about her experience called Releasement, Learning to Dance with Life, which is available for purchase on Amazon. Welcome to the show, Lucille. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having me. So your book's called Releasement, Mm -hmm. which is an interesting word. I'm I'm into words. What does releasement mean? mean and what do you mean by releasement i guess more precisely yes it is an unusual word and i found it in one dictionary oxford says it's the act of setting a person free which of course could be yourself uh another interesting definition i found was um release is to stop carrying or containing or holding something and that was interesting to me because I heard this word from uh, Kenneth Mills, who was a mentor to me, and one day he said to me, feel the releasement of not being a container of something you couldn't possibly contain. So, say, the force of life itself. 
and feel the freedom of being the recipient of gifts of life. And that can sound a bit abstract, but it meant a lot to me. And in fact, when I wrote my book, it really seemed to characterize the shift in my life from you know, pursuing success and puffing up my personal existence to be as um, you know, important and successful and substantial as possible to realizing that I'm part of a greater whole. I'm a recipient of the gift of life, of awareness, of being, and that I don't have to sustain myself. And, you know, there's a marvelous story that um, David Foster Wallace used to tell about the two little fish in the ocean, and they're swimming along, and uh, a big fish comes by and says, hey, boys, how's the water? And the little fish swim along for a while, and then one of them says to the other, what the hell's water? And I think a lot of us are the same. You know, we're swimming along in this ocean of life, of consciousness, of beingness, and we're often unaware of it. And so releasement to me is about being aware of that totality and not just being focused on, on you know, me and my world and my ego. So getting beyond what's right in front of you, right? Yes. Is, is that pretty much it? Mm-hmm. Sort of understanding your role in a bigger space than your sort of visceral reactions to what's going on in front of you. Yeah. Sometimes I think of the word releasement as the ease of being real, of knowing what's real and what's just passing Okay. and being able to make that distinction. For those, for those who maybe aren't cottoning on to what you mean by releasement, do you have, yeah. an, do you have a more tangible example sure. that you could give? Yeah. I mean, one of the um, most basic forms of releasement is watching our thoughts. Okay. Which, uh, you know, is, I mean, I'm sure many of your listeners do this, but the first time I realized that I actually wasn't my thoughts, that I was watching my thoughts, was a really big experience of releasement because you, then you realize that you can choose your thoughts and that you're there as the observer. You're not every thought that pops into your head. You're not every emotion. You're the one observing all of this. So that way you can ex- gain some kind of experiential distance on your experience and not so caught up in every high and low and everything that happens. Okay. So that's similar. That's similar to a mindfulness concept of, of sort of being in the moment and, and observing uh, yeah. as opposed to reacting. reacting or acting. Yes. In fact, Thich Nhat Hanh would tell you, and I heard on one of your shows, Jamie, that uh, you occasionally experience road rage. Yep. And he says that when you're stuck in traffic, it's a great opportunity for breathing and practicing. And uh, so all of us who are in Toronto have lots of opportunities for uh, that form of releasement while we're sitting in traffic. I would agree. I I think uh, if I could actually pull it off, my wife would be very, very happy. She finds every single road trip, you know, very taxing with me in the car because I get very, very upset. And it's a difficult thing to sort of separate yourself from your thoughts, right? Because if you're an introspective person or if you're prone to anxieties or if you are believing sort of catastrophizing sort of events and things like that, it's a very challenging thing to do to step away from your thoughts. It's very challenging. I was at a concert last week and saw a friend I hadn't seen for a while and uh, said, John, how are you? And he said, I don't know how to answer that question anymore. Yeah. You know, with everything going on in the world. Yep. And he named off the list we all know. Right. Uh, you know, the crises in the world. And um, I, 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 to me, the practicing and 
the ability of releasement is the ability to know where you stand on a deeper foundation and being able to answer that question, how are you? Right. It's not referential to all the things that are happening in the world picture, but are actually grounded in your inner state, which, you know, I mean, how are we able to even perceive all this chaos? This is another thing I learned from Kenneth Mills, that the only way you recognize chaos as chaos is if your own nature actually is harmony. Otherwise, you'd never know that chaos was chaos. You must know harmony. Right. And so the idea is to focus on harmony. And, you know, you just have to look at a leaf or a petal um, to, to know the harmony and beauty and principle of life and, and really go there. And because we know we create our world by how we think. And if we can change our thoughts and really choose how we direct our energy of thought and not be so caught up in, you know, the, all the negativity that we hear and so on and gain some distance on that, I think we are in a much better position to engage and actually, you know, not be passive, but um, to have the equipoise and equanimity to actually um, know what to do. What spurred you towards this concept of releasement and, and writing your book? Well, about 10 years or so ago, I started to notice what felt to me like maybe a revolution in the search for meaning. Um, I noticed in your background, you uh, were smart enough to leave the corporate world and do something quite different. I, on the other hand, hung in yep. and had this um, longer corporate career and often it felt like a foot in two worlds mm -hmm. because the sacred and secular, you might say, were so far apart. And anybody, you know, each side was kind of viewing the other with a lot of suspicion. And I've been noticing so many more signs of integration, which I think is very healthy. I mean, the obvious one is meditation, of course, right. appearing in workplaces and so on. And so I got very excited about that. So ever the consultant, I started doing interviews and focus groups, asking people, what are you searching for? What are you finding? What are you not finding? I found all this fascinating, and I wrote it all up in a book. I gave it to some readers who said, well, this is interesting, but, you know, it sounds a bit like a BCG report. <laughs> and, uh, you know, where are you in all of this? So I went back to the drawing board and started again and mm -hmm. tried to think of what could possibly be interesting in my life to write about. And it became a very different book. So it's, it's, it's interesting you approached it that way. Like, I'm such an egomaniac that I inserted myself at the very beginning uh, into, into my journey, right? Like, like mm -hmm. I, I did a sea change. Like, like, I was Vishnu the Destroyer. I was a commercial litigator, you know, like, yeah. and that's like, you know, that's a very aggressive and can be a very miserable existence if you let, if you don't take mm -hmm. care of yourself. But it never occurred to me not to put myself in there. It's interesting that you, you had to sort of be prompted to do it. Yes, yeah, I've always been, I guess, an introvert. And oh, when, so you're, when you're a consultant, you're always analyzing and looking at things. And that was kind of where I started. So, I mean, the book for me is, um, is actually an experience of releasement, of telling my story. Right. Can you sort of walk us through sort of the process of releasement? And, and you know, we probably don't have enough time to get through everything, but maybe the high points or give an example of the process? Sure. Well, one of the most important things is, and also one of the hard things, is to find time in your day to focus on something other than your to-do list and all the things that are coming at you over a day. When I was at um, BCG, 
uh, Dr. Mills used to tell me, take time to be timeless. And it's very good advice. So I try every day to set aside time and read something inspiring. I tend to write about it or reflect on it. Mm -hmm. And I also tend to take a sentence or a phrase, something that inspires me, and carry it with me over the day. So, for example, today I've got in my mind the statement, um, every thought imbued with love sets the captive free. So kind of mysterious, mm-hmm. but um, not something necessarily to analyze. But, you know, if I'm sitting on the subway or coming in to talk to you, I remember that statement and I find it changes the day. Or there's another one I heard recently that I loved that's on the wall of the bookstore in London, Shakespeare and Company. Mm-hmm. It's based on a biblical reference in Hebrews, but rewritten by the bookstore owner. Be not inhospitable to strangers, for lest they be angels in disguise. Hmm. And, you know, here we are in this season of giving and receiving gifts. And I think realizing our own sense of receptivity of gifts and offering that to another and recognizing that they might be angels in disguise would be a wonderful thing to be doing at this time of year. I agree. I'm still stuck on the captive. I'm wondering who the captive is. Isn't that great? Yeah. There's no definition of the captive. It could be you. Yeah. It could be the person you're thinking of. I'm pretty sure it's me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can all feel like a captive at times, but um, that's, the, that's where the releasement comes in, is being artful about uh, where do I find the release. And I find that words and inspiring quotes can make a huge difference how we use language and how we direct our energy and getting that distance on our thoughts. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming into the show today. Thank you, Jamie. It's been a pleasure. That was Lucille Joseph. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the connection between depression and the holidays on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Faust A. Ruggiero's professional career spans almost 40 years and is diversified and compelling as it has consistently established new and exciting cutting-edge counseling programs in its pursuit of professional excellence and personal life enhancement. He's a published research author, clinical trainer, and therapist who's worked in settings that have included clinics for deaf children, prisons, nursing homes, substance abuse centers, 
inpatient facilities, uh, major corporations, both national and international, and as president of the Community Psychological Center in Bangor, Pennsylvania. In that capacity, he's developed the Process Way of Life Counseling Program, and it's developed into a formal text presentation in the Fix Yourself Handbook. Welcome to the show, Faust. How are you? I am well. Thanks so much for inviting me. So this time of year, many people are happy and relaxed. It's time off. But not everybody. Some people find the holiday season overwhelming, and they get depressed. So how does a depressed person perceive what's happening around them in the holiday season? You know, Jamie, it's a setup, really. Uh, Like everything we do, we start thinking about it. So they're going to start setting themselves up by saying, here come the holidays, I hate these kind of things. And, and, and they're, they're going to look at it in a very depressed way, you know, a very negative way, which is, exa- which is a, a result of the neurotransmitter production that's been reduced and now is being further challenged uh, during the fast pace of the holidays. So, you know, we're a health and wellness show and we cover stuff like seasonal affective disorder. Is, is that what's playing into this? Is that a factor for people who, who sometimes get depressed this time of year? Absolutely. Uh, because, again, we're talking neurotransmitter production. We want the brain to be able to do what it's supposed to do. And now we have less sunlight. We have uh, less movement, people in the house more often. So we're taking a situation which is exciting and everyone's, you know, hustle, bustle, the whole deal. Everyone's into it. That causes a depressed person to withdraw to begin with. And now you put on less, you know, uh, neurotransmitter production and it gets, it gets very challenging. So you used a phrase earlier you called setups. Yeah. So let's explore that for a bit. Like, what do these setups look like? What are the sort of things that happen for somebody who's prone to depression at this time of year? You know, the setups, Jamie, come on two ends. It's interesting. Depressed people and then the people around them. Right. The depressed person is going into this saying, I know what this is going to look like. I don't want to be part of this. I want to isolate, I want to get away from all this, and they're going to be a little more difficult to work with. Not, you know, not horrible, but just I, I don't want to do anything. On the other end, we've got people who have grabbed the holiday spirit and, and that excitement, and they're running with it, and they really don't want to have that person draw them back. So they start to exhibit some avoidance behaviors at a time when a depressed person needs them the most. So now we, we kind of expand the gap between uh, that depression and, and, and normal functioning, if you will. There's, it, the gap just expands, and now we have, we have avoidance on one end, and we have increased isolation on the other. Right, and I would imagine, you know, friends and family members, if you're used to somebody who tends towards depression and you know what's coming, you may kind of alter your behavior as well to try to draw them out or draw them in or, or whatever, right? And if you're, But if you don't know the right thing to do, you might do the exact wrong thing, right? You can. Uh, the wrong thing is to try to force them or to tell them they're doing things wrong. There's a whole language thing that comes into play at this time of the year. Well, it's there all the time, but this time of the year, the it, 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 season exacerbates it. It's that, that thing, I can't do this, I don't want to do this, uh, you know, you're not going to make me do this, and then the other person is trying to get this done quickly, sort of like working with your uh, kids with homework. You know, you don't want to do it, they don't want to do it, and everyone's fighting each other. So the depressed person doesn't want to do anything. You don't want to get involved in all this because it takes you away from what you're doing, and now we have that whole language thing going on where no one is saying the right things. Okay. Why don't we focus on, for, for the moment, let's focus on what we can do 
if we're prone to depression or even if we're not and we're just kind of feeling those feelings this time of year, for, for maybe for the first time, what are some of the things that we can sort of do internally that might mitigate this? If you're a depressed person, the first thing that you do is, is, is make it a, a, a kind of promise to yourself not to isolate. Uh, depression is one of those conditions in and of itself which, which causes a person to isolate to not speak, to, to retreat, if you will. So you want to try to say, you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get out there and do a few things. And if you're on the other side, you're going to help those people come out a little bit. Uh, include them in some things. Don't force them. Um, uh, you know, keep going back. Don't just say it once and they say no and you leave them alone. Let them know that you're understanding it's a depression, that depression is causing this. Uh, it's not who they are. There's nothing wrong with them. No shame in this. Uh, validate that it's just the depression. Uh, it's, it's a condition they have. You're there with them. You want to work with them together. And, you know, we're going we're gonna to put a few more hands on this thing and uh, attack it uh, with, with a little more force. Okay, so I, I tend to be introverted and I tend to internalize a lot of things and I am sort of prone to mood swings and some might argue that I can become depressed. There's kind of an interior monologue that goes on in my head uh, and you, you kind of reference internal language. Is that the same thing? Are we talking about the same thing? Yeah, it is. Let me give you a quick example. You're going to go, it doesn't even have to be the holidays. You're going to go out to a party or so. Now in your mind, you know you don't want to go. You right. want to kind of stay home. Now you start thinking of the people that are going to be there, and you start going through the dialogues, and none of them are good. You're not feeling like you measure up. Uh, or, or it's just going to be difficult, or they're going to make some. They're going to make some comments. Now you start talking yourself into this thing, and before you know it, uh, going to something as simple as a, a family get together becomes this insurmountable task because you've already had the dialogues in your mind, and none of them have worked out. Okay, so I, having felt those feelings before, I, I, I can tell you, like it, it's a longer and harder process than you know, snap out of it. But oh, absolutely. If you're feeling those things, is there anything we can do in the moment? Are, are there any ways to alleviate it, understanding that these feelings are bigger than, oh, I have to go to this party or, oh, I yep. really don't feel like yep. seeing my family right now? Like, because I, I can sort of – sometimes I can work my way through it, right? If I focus – for example, on one positive aspect of what's coming up, like maybe the food will be good or, you know, maybe this person puts out a good, you know, uses the high end alcohol. I don't know what the answer is, but you can look for the positive. Would you recommend that or is there something else we can do? For, Certainly, for... that's part of it. Uh, those positive affirmations, because it doesn't make the situation look so bleak. But the other thing that I try to get all my people to do, and I write about this all the time, is that depression is what I call an aloneness condition. Not that it's lonely, it's alone. You can feel alone in the crowd. For sure. If you can identify one person, just one, who you're willing to talk to, Tell them what you're feeling. This person is, is looking at you. They're listening. They're not giving you advice because you're not going to take it. Uh, you know, it's too hard to do that. They're just going to work with you little, in little increments and try to help you work through it. Uh, you know, uh, communication's the first step. Maybe it's, hey, hey, you know, let's not go to the party, but let's just get out of the house and see where it goes from there. If you get that one person you trust, now you're not all alone in depression. That's a huge advantage uh, to people that are suffering from this because that's the first thing people do is they isolate. Do you think family and friends are necessarily aware that, that you know, their loved ones may be suffering with depression? Like, is it apparent or do you kind of really have to know? 
only in the acute cases. Um, and even if family members know, well, so-and-so has depression, they don't understand it. They don't know what it's like to feel those feelings, that void that you, that you, that you live in, uh, that inability to communicate. Even though you want to say something, it doesn't want to come out. Even though you want to try to go to that uh, social event, you just can't. They don't understand that and, then that, and that's why they'll say, well, come on, just try. They don't understand you know, what it's like to be stuck in the mud like that. Uh, so, yeah, they may know it's there. And, that, and, and I tell people, try to learn as much about this as you can if you have a family member. You know, getting all the information and understanding it is a huge uh, advantage to this. But that's why we don't push people in this situation. We just talk with them. We let them know we're here. And we're going to try to move ahead little by little if we can. Okay, so assume let's let's sort of flip the script a bit. Let's say you're hosting or you're at an event and you happen to understand that somebody there is is suffering from depression or is just not feeling their best self. What sort of things and and how would you approach it? What kind of tips would you give to somebody who wants to engage with somebody with depression? And they're already there. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's more simpler than you think. Uh, you're going to simply go up to them and say, "Hey, how are we doing? You know, I can see you're having a difficult time. Would you like to take a walk with me?" Because uh, one of the things I build into with my patients when they come in and they're in those situations, I say, "Have yourself two things: uh, a pause plan and an exit plan." If you really can't stay there and it's going to get you know, critical, then you're going to want to leave and get somebody to help you do that. But sometimes it's just about going into a situation when it starts to get you know, a little suffocating, if you will. Take a walk outside if you can. Uh, and, and, and get some, as I say, getting, I always call it the advocate, that person you trust. Say, hey, take a walk with me. Uh, or, or you see the person that's depressed. I can see it's happening. Come on, let's you and I take a little walk. And it might be five or ten minutes and they're ready to come back in. Or they may tell you, you know what, I'm good. I've been here. I'm okay. I'm going to go home now. But, you know, what we don't want to do is walk on eggshells here. We want right. to be honest, straightforward, and say, I see what's happening. I got you if you want me to. Let's see what we can do. Okay. I, I, like, last question. This seems like a very, like, it seems like threading the needle, right? Like, you want to be engaging. You want to help somebody through it. But by the same token, you know, how many times can you engage before it becomes sort of confrontational, like to the person who's depressed? Like if they don't want to talk about it, if they don't want to engage, how far, like how do you know when to pull back and, and not push the issue? Well, they're going to tell you that. But if you're getting to that point, it, it could mean either the, the depression is very severe yeah. or it may mean you're pushing a little too hard. Right. I'm telling people just have a dialogue. If I'm depressed and you're coming at me and I know you're going to try to get me to do things, I'm already, you know, digging my heels in. But if I know you're coming just to have a conversation with me, I can relax a little bit. Then little by little, we might throw something in there and say, let's take this one little step. What do you think? And you don't make it real challenging. You, you, what we, the mistake we make is we try to get them to where we think we, they should be or where we want them to be. That's not going to happen. It's, it's that little step that they're able to, to accomplish. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. 
Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Petros Kardiakakis, Spencer Brewer, Lucille Joseph, and Faust Ruggiero. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The winter issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you are interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.